0: Before I pray and bring the message, I want to say what an honor it is for me to be here at All Saints. Your church has not only outstanding pastoral leadership, but you are known throughout the city of Atlanta and the state of Georgia in the United States as being a congregation of servant leaders, people who are leaders in this city of Atlanta and who reach out in love and compassion to a world in need. So it's indeed a privilege and an honor for me to be in this pulpit. Will you pray with me? Gracious and loving God, pour through me the gift of preaching, that these words might not simply be human words or human opinions, but by a miracle of your grace, that these words might become your living word to us. And we know they will, O God, for we pray with anticipation in the strong name of Jesus Christ. And may all God's people say, amen. Growing up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, the home of the six-time Super Bowl champion Steelers, I had to get that in somewhere. I became a fan of the Steelers, and sometimes in my sermons over the years, I would mention the Steelers, particularly in their glory years. So one year, the Steelers played the Los Angeles Rams in the Super Bowl. And that particular Sunday, people came into church and they were saying, we wonder what you're going to say about the Steelers or the Rams or the Super Bowl. So they were surprised when I got up in the pulpit and said, today I'm not mentioning the Super Bowl, I'm not mentioning the Steelers, but I am going to read from the book of Leviticus about the ram offering. And I opened the Bible and read, thou shalt take the rams and thou shalt completely slaughter them. Thou shalt cut them up into little pieces and let the blood drip on the altar. And then I closed the Bible and said, friends, blessed be the word of the Lord. (laughs) Well, you know, in sports, we often talk about one team trampling another team or one team slaughtering another team, and sometimes it's all in good fun. But what I want to deal with this morning is, this afternoon, is that we live in a world where people are being slaughtered and are being trampled, and it's no laughing matter. Dr. Lucille Pearson of Clemson University wrote an essay some years ago, and it was followed up by sociologists at Stanford and at New York University and other major universities who've made it even more current. But Pearson took the world of 7 billion people and took it down to a microcosm of 100 people. So if our world was 100 people, this would be some of the parameters. Just listen. Listen. 60 would be from Asia, 15 would be from Africa, only five would be from North America. 33 would be Christian, 67 would be non-Christian. And of the 67 non-Christian, 22 would be Muslim, 14 would be Hindu, and 12 would be the nuns, meaning they have no religious preference. But wait till you hear this. Of the seven billion people in the world, if they were narrowed down to a microcosm of 100 people, 48 of them, would live on less than $2 a day. In other words, seven, three and a half billion people would live on $700 a year or less. It's a hungry world. 50 out of the 100 would be malnourished, meaning they have no reliable access to food or clean drinking water. 15 would be suffering from severe malnutrition, and one would be dying of hunger. That's 70 million people. And to make these statistics even more relevant, this morning, as we woke up in the United States of America, here in the city of Atlanta, Georgia, there are at least 750,000 homeless people on the streets of our cities, and about 70, uh, 75,000 of those are children under the age of 12. Now, we could deal with statistics all afternoon, but the question I want to ask you is, how do you and I deal with those kind of statistics living in this kind of world? I mean, how are we going to really go to sleep tonight knowing this is the kind of world in which we live? Well, Bishop Michael Marshall, the former Bishop of Woolrick in England, Bishop Marshall said, I think we've bought into a kind of decaffeinated Christianity. It's guaranteed not to keep you awake at night. Decaffeinated Christianity is a Christianity without a concern for the poor, without a concern for those who are being slaughtered and trampled by life. It's a Christianity without a concern for the widening gap between the rich and the poor and the haves and the have-nots. Decaffeinated Christianity is what German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. Make no mistake about it. Decaffeinated Christianity is anathema to Jesus Christ. Now, the message that Jesus brought to his hometown in Nazareth that Noel just read for us a moment ago was anything but a decaffeinated message. It was actually a caffeine-fueled wake-up call to put God's priorities in your life. And make no mistake about it, if those people in the synagogue that day, and if those of us here in all saints here today, were to take Jesus' message seriously, it would change our life. Now, picture the scene with me in your mind's eye. Jesus walks into this synagogue. A synagogue in that day was not the temple. There were no sacrifices there. It was a place for community, a place for a meal, a place for prayer, a place for worship. The president of the synagogue would have, each worship service, invited seven people to read from the scripture. Scripture was not a bound volume as we have it today, but on a scroll, as you know. Jesus was one of the seven invited to read that day. And if a distinguished guest were to come... Like Jesus was a distinguished guest, they would have been asked to teach. So Jesus was asked to read from the scroll and to teach. Now imagine, Jesus took the scroll, unrolls Isaiah 61, and he reads... The spirit of the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the release of the captives, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. This is from Isaiah 61, a servant song talking about the Messiah, the qualities of the Messiah who is to come in the future. Then he unrolled the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, And looked everyone in the eye and he sat down. The origin of the word chair in a university is that when rabbis taught, they sat down. He sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And then he said, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Nobody would have breathed. It was like lightning in that room. They first heard these words with joy and with wonder and with amazement. But soon after, if you read the text that follows verse 21, where Noel stopped, if you read a little further, actually the people get quite angry and they become in a rage and they want to kill Jesus. You see, these were revolutionary words. These were radical words. And this afternoon, very quickly, I want to lift up three radical thoughts that are in this passage Radical thought number one, Jesus of Nazareth was and is the Messiah. Now, when the people were in the synagogue that day, they, they were saying, this is Jesus and is Joseph's son, the carpenter. I mean, I mean, they knew Jesus. In those days, carpenters actually did work with wood, but they worked more commonly with stone. They were often stone cutters. People in that area would have known Jesus. They would have spent time with him. They would have done commerce with him and with Joseph. They would have known him. And they're trying to scratch their heads in bewilderment. Is he suggesting that he is the Messiah? We know him. He, he grew up here. We, we, they, we know some of his foibles. We know about him. What is he really saying? And the more they thought about it, they thought of it as blasphemy. And what he was really suggesting is that he is the Messiah. He didn't look like the Messiah. He rode in to Jerusalem on a donkey, but they were expecting someone to ride in on a white horse with a, with a spear and a sword to defeat all Israel's enemies and restore them to the glory they knew under David and Solomon. This is a radical claim. This is, in a sense, blasphemy. I am the Messiah. Theologian and apologist and author C.S. Lewis says, the claims of Jesus are so radical that he is either liar, lunatic, or lured. Dr. Karl Barth of Germany came to the United States and preached a lectureship at Princeton Theological Seminary. I had several friends who were there when Dr. Barth spoke. And they said he spoke in the chapel and then he went to Stevenson Hall and had a lecture and a talk back with the students. One student asked him, Dr. Barth, does God reveal the divine self in other religions or only in Christianity? And this man said to me, Dr. Bart's words were like lightning in that lounge, much like Jesus' words in that synagogue would have been like lightning. Dr. Bart said, God doesn't reveal God's self in any religion, including Christianity. God reveals God's self, the divine self, in his son, in the son of man, in the son of God. That is it. And everyone didn't know what to do with it. In other words, he was suggesting, Dr. Bart, that, that Christianity is not a religion, that this isn't about doctrine or about dogma or about a moral code, but a relationship with a person. It was staggering to them. I ministered for some years in Houston, Texas, and there was a big church there a church that was very loud, a kind of a mega church, and they had loud music and drums and rock music, and people got a petition for them to keep a little quieter. It was too loud. And they took the petition to a Jewish man, and it is a true story, who was a neighbor of the church and said, would you sign this so the church will keep a little quieter? And he read the petition and said, no, I will not sign it. And when they asked him why, he said, if I as a Jew believed what they believe, that the Messiah has come, why, I'd be noisier than they are. And what this Jewish man got everybody to realize is this is a radical claim. Jesus of Nazareth was and is the Messiah, the Son of God. Well, radical claim number two in this text, the love and grace of God is offered to all people. And the reason this text was like grenades in their, going off in their mind when Jesus read Isaiah 61 is what he was suggesting is God's love and compassion is to all, even the blind and the captives and the maimed. And the people who were hearing this were offended by it. They had been offended that Jesus began his ministry in Capernaum, that he had preached to people. There were a lot of non-Jewish people there. They were offended by that. And they thought when he came to his hometown in Nazareth, he would say a good word about it. But, but instead, he uttered what they thought was blasphemy. And Jesus defended his position that God's love and grace are for all people by quoting two great prophets a little further down in Luke chapter 4. He quotes Elijah and Elisha, one going to the widow at Zarephath in Sidon and the other going to Naaman the leper in Syria. What Jesus was suggesting is God's love and grace are not just for people in Israel, but for Sidon and for Syria and the surrounding area where the people thought it was blasphemy again. They wanted to be on the inside. They wanted to be the chosen people. And these words deeply disturbed the people. It's like if Jesus came to Atlanta and walked right by All Saints Church, it's hard to believe, but if he walked right by All Saints and what if he went over to Little Five Points to a sports bar where, where people are having a beer and watching March Madness? And what if he wanted to associate with those people? Wouldn't we be just a little offended? Well, why didn't he at least stop into All Saints? Why would he go to, all, to Five Points and associate with those people, particularly hungry people and homeless people and poor people and drug addicts? And Why would he do that? And we're a little offended because he would want to go to that bar in all saints, that bar in, in five points. Maybe there is a bar in all saints, but all those bars, all those bars over in, in five points. You know, I'd like to get the address of that little bar over in five points. But Jesus might have gone to that place because that's a wideness. There's a wideness in God's mercy that's wider than the sea, the, the song says. Some years ago, I memorized Edwin Markham's poem, Outwitted. It's relevant here. He drew a circle that shut me out. Heretic, rebel, a thing to flout. But love and I had the wit to win. We drew a circle that took him in. The love and grace of God is for all people. We'd like it to be just for us. But the reality is the love and grace of God is for everyone. God draws a circle that is inclusive, and we so often in the church try to be exclusive. It's what the people in the synagogue did that day. They were trying to exclude others, and Jesus was saying there's a wideness in God's mercy. Draw a wider circle, but it sometimes offends us. Radical thought number one, Jesus is the Messiah. Radical thought number two, the love and grace of God is for all people. But radical thought number three is hardest of all. Real Christianity, what Jesus was teaching, the radical thought, is the way of the cross. Let me be clear. Following Jesus is costly. Following Jesus means we're concerned about the poor Following Jesus is to live against the grain of the culture. Following Jesus is to have our hearts broken by the things that break the heart of God. Following Jesus is to proclaim good news to the poor, the release of the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free and proclaim the acceptable way, time of the Lord. It's the way of the cross. So I went to another megachurch in another city, not in Atlanta. I'd heard about it for many years. You would Many, many of you would know the name of it. You would have read about it in the paper. I'd always wanted to go there. I went to this mega church and I worshiped there and heard the music and went to the bookstore and they have coffee shops in the, in the, around the sanctuary place. And I went and got coffee and went to the bookstore and enjoyed my visit immensely. But I noticed one thing was missing and I didn't see it anywhere. And so I went up to the pastor after the service and said, I enjoyed the service, but I do notice one thing is missing here. There is no cross anywhere in this building. And he made sure nobody was listening to our conversation and he whispered to me, you know, the cross doesn't market well in this culture. So we don't have a cross here and we never will. It doesn't market well. And I thought to myself, you know, he's right. The cross doesn't market very well in this culture but you remember Jesus said, wide is the road that leads to destruction. A lot of people are taking it. Narrow is the way that leads to life. And the Christian faith is costly. It's a narrow road. Not everybody's taken it. It's narrow. But decaffeinated Christianity is this wide road. Don't speak of the cross. It's messy and it's too much and it doesn't market very well. That's decaffeinated Christianity. But the real thing, real Christianity is a narrower way. It's the way of the cross. It's not about us. It's about serving others. I just close with this thought that Andrew Young, when he was mayor of Atlanta, Georgia, took his daughter to hear Millard Fuller, who was president of Habitat for Humanity. And Dr. Fuller was speaking profoundly about building houses for the poor, Habitat homes in Rwanda, in Africa. Well, Dr. Young and, and his daughter knew that there was torture in Rwanda and the people were being killed. There was revolution there. It was, it was an awful place to be. And Millard Fuller was asking not only for an offering of money, but an offering of people. He said, I not only need money tonight, but I need people to volunteer to come with me. I'm going to go to Rwanda. They need homes there desperately. We need young people to come and build homes for the poor, those who are resilient and courageous. And and Andrew Young's daughter leaned over to her dad and said, I want to go to Rwanda. And her dad said, we'll talk about it later. And he wrote a big check to Habitat for Humanity and said, now look, honey, I'm giving this big check to, to Mr. Fuller, and, and you're going to stay right here in Atlanta, but I'm giving a big check to Mr. Fuller for, to build homes in Rwanda for the poor, because we believe in that. She said, but daddy, I want to go to Rwanda too. And he said, now honey, you're needed right here in Atlanta, Georgia. And, he went and handed the check to, to Dr. Fuller. And then his daughter said, Dr. Fuller, I want to drop out of school. I want to come and I want to serve the poor with you. And and Millard Fuller was taking down her name and address. And meanwhile, Andrew Young is saying to her, honey, you're needed right here in Atlanta, Georgia. And she said, daddy, I've heard you preaching about the poor and preaching about giving your life to Jesus and preaching about serving others and costly sacrifice and costly discipleship. And he said, well, honey, I know that was in this context of a sermon, but I didn't really mean you. I mean, I didn't really mean it. you should go and and they're discussing this on the side and kind of arguing about it. And finally Andrew Young said, Honey, if you want to go, graduate from school. And if you want to go, your mother and I will let you go. Well he thought she'd never want to go. And she graduated from college and when she finished she said to her dad and mother, I want to go to Rwanda. I want to build homes for the poor. I want to serve Habitat for humanity. And they let her go. Don't we know as parents you can't hold on to them. You gotta let them go and so Andrew Young and his wife drove her to the airport, and they hugged her and kissed her, and Andrew Young's wife noticed that when Andrew hugged her, there were these enormous tears streaming down his face, and when he said goodbye, and they waved goodbye to their daughter, and as she rounded the bend, Andrew Young's wife said to him, honey, this is really hard for you, isn't it? He said, it is hard, but that's not why I'm crying. She said, well, why are you crying? He said, I just got in touch with the fact that I had raised our daughter all these years, and we raised her to be a respectable Christian. I, at least, wasn't prepared for her to become a real one. All Saints Episcopal Church, this Holy Week, God is calling us to be real Christians not respectable Christians. That's decaffeinated Christianity. God is calling us to be real Christians who can't sleep tonight because of some of these statistics at the beginning, and we want to make an impact and a difference. We want to bridge the gap between the rich and the poor. That's real Christianity. So I close with a question. What will it be, all saints? May I pour you a cup of decaf? Or will you come to the table during this week and drink a cup of the real thing. The choice is up to every one of us. Amen.